the incumbent uh, who takes bags of corporate cash um, from all of the industries that are polluting uh, the, the planet. Um, he has said, uh, and these are words out of his mouth, that the Green New Deal is not an important resolution. Um, so I'm definitely using that. This is an example of speech. Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think, a free from oversight and free of charge, socially distanced and socially networked, unrehearsed and unredacted, details expanded, whistle blow hard, evergreen topical heat wave of an ongoing conversation, turned podcast, in which we discuss politics, global affairs, current events, and anything else that bubbles up from the unmoderated comment section in our brains. We urge you to join us and tell us what you think. To listen to the archives, go to stoneduckmedia.com or tellmewhattothink.com. You can contact us at tmwttpod at gmail.com. I'm producer Pete. You can contact me on Twitter at bloatednemesis. And with me, as always, is Charles Minnick, who is on Twitter at green underscore weird, which is spelled W-Y-R-D. This episode, Charles and I speak with congressional candidate from Washington's 2nd District, Jason Call. Prepare to get worked up, not worked over. This is Tell Me What to Think. Washington's second congressional district. Thanks for coming on the show, Jason. Appreciate very much the opportunity to talk to you, Charles. Um, so I guess uh, we'll break the ice the way I usually do. Tell me what you think about Washington's second district. Well, um, I've lived here for the last 21 years. Um, I'm a relatively native Washingtonian. I've lived in Washington, uh, Washington for, uh, um, 30, 37, 38 years. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got a mix of urban and rural, like many districts. Uh, one of the things that is, um, fairly unique to us is that we have probably more coastline than almost any other district in uh, the U.S. Uh, just by by nature of the fact that we um, have uh, our islands in the Puget Sound um, and the the district itself runs about 75 miles of, of coastline on the I-5 corridor um, uh, towards Canada from where I am. I'm about, uh, uh, I live about 40 miles north of Seattle, but the district starts about 20 miles south of me, but we got 20, uh, 75 miles of, of I-5 corridor. Uh, some of it's urban, some of it's rural. Um, you know, we've got a couple of naval bases here in the district. Uh, and, you know, we're, a, we're a solidly blue district in terms of our electoral history. Um, the incumbent here, uh, has, is seeking a 10th term and he has won over, uh, Republican and libertarian challengers over the last decade, um, fairly handily sort of a, a, a two to one margin for the most part. So, um, right now, uh, our, our filing week in Washington just ended. So the people who are going to be on the primary ballot are now on the ballot. I am there with the incumbent as the other Democrat in the race. Uh, he's a very conservative Democrat. I am the progressive Democrat in the race. In fact, the only progressive in the race. And we have six Republican challengers. So I am, I'm, yeah. And I'm, so I'm looking forward to them splitting that, you know, what is typically 
you know, 35 to 40 percent of the vote, uh, they're going to split that up. And I see this. I, I don't want to say it's going to be an easy uh, way for me to get onto the general election ballot. But, uh, you know, it is it is a little bit of a gift in terms of um, uh, having them uh, uh, split that split that uh, right wing vote. And um, with me getting the progressive vote in the district, I, I, I look forward to being on the general election ballot with the incumbent. And our primary is August the 4th. August 4th, right. It sounds like it'll have a pretty easy path. They'll probably spend all of their money fighting each other and the incumbent, Rick Larson. Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm hoping so. And, I, you know, I, I say easy. I don't want to take anything for granted. We're going to fight for every vote. Um, we just did a, a massive um, yard sign and freeway sign order. And we're going to be, uh, over the next few weeks, getting our signs up all over the district. Um, you know, we're not certainly not taking anything for granted. I've got a great volunteer uh, base. I've got over 100 people signed up to volunteer. Um, and I've got a great tech team. Uh, the guy who uh, runs my tech operations is the same guy who built Burnout. Uh, so I feel like I'm at a, at a nice advantage uh, with having people understand um, how to do social media targeting, um, text banking, and so on. Sure, I get that uh, technical edge. Yeah. Um, looking at your district, it's hard to imagine there's a corner of it that won't be touched by climate change and its ongoing effects. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we do you know, too? so like I said, we've got we've got more coast, coastline than almost any other um, uh, district in the country. I've, I've estimated it at at least 400 miles of coastline. Um, and... Uh, so this has actually been one of the selling points, as, as you probably know, as a progressive, um, I am touting the Green New Deal. I'm fully supportive of the Green New Deal resolution. Um, the incumbent uh, who takes bags of corporate cash um, from all of the industries that are polluting uh, the, the planet, um, he has said, uh, and these are words out of his mouth, that the Green New Deal is not an important resolution. Um, so I'm definitely using that and saying, you know, uh, when when we get, you know, 15, 20 years down the road and we really start experiencing uh, rising tides, assuming that we have not been able to effectively combat the emergency and stop the global ice melt and, you know, um, the, the, the global warming that's going to, you know, in, increase the increase the sea seawater levels, uh, we're going to be affected more than any other district in the country. Um, and so we we really have to start one. Um, thinking about how we're going to uh, slow down, uh, negate the effects of emissions, uh, you, know, you know, cut emissions in half by 2030 or sooner, um, eliminate them by 2045 or sooner. Uh, otherwise, what we are going to have to do in this district is figure out how to move a whole bunch of our coastal population inland. And that's going to take some infrastructure that we don't have either. Um, so there are some real challenges for our district. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very much promoting uh the Green New Deal and this idea that we have got to get on on the ball for um, the survival of our district. What I'm also saying is that our district is really, you know, our, our natural geography is really ripe for being a leader, not only in the state, but in the country for what we need to do in terms of transforming our energy systems. We're sitting here on the ring of fire. We have access to geothermal energy. Again, more coastline than almost anywhere in the country. We can take care 
um, or we can do some investments in in tidal energy. And as somebody who has had solar panels on on my house for the last seven years, I took advantage of some very nice Washington State incentives. Uh, back in 2013, I've got a four kilowatt solar system um, on my house. And I can tell you, uh, we're getting 88% efficiency out of those solar panels. And those solar panels that I bought, I did not, you know, I opted for the more expensive ones, took out a loan for that. They were built right here in my hometown of Marysville. That business has unfortunately closed right now. But I think we need to get a lot of um, solar panel manufacturing going on right here in our district. Sure. Uh, you mentioned the naval bases earlier. As someone faced with you know climate change and pollution and the presence of the military, would you? What do you think the uh, military's future presence would be in your district? Do you well, think you would, would I you mean, be okay it's a tough question. Removing, would you be okay with it's, removing it's a, the bases? <laughs> well, so I, I'll I'll give you a little bit of a um, a unique situation that we have going on here. Uh, our, the biggest island in Puget Sound is called Whidbey Island. Uh, there's the Whidbey Island Naval Air Station there. Um, one of the issues with that particular naval base is that the entirety uh, or soon to be the entirety of the Navy's growler fleet is going to be stationed at that base. Now, the growlers are um, EA-18 jets. They are converted F-18 Hornets. Uh, Hornets have been in production um, since the late 70s. Uh, these have now been converted to electronic surveillance. Um, and there's about 100, there's gonna, there's, there's around 80 of them now. There's going to be about 112, which is the entirety of the Navy's fleet here. So these, um, the issue with these particular planes is that they are flying training missions morning, noon, and night over populated areas. Um, there's a huge amount of environmental pollution. As you know, um, our marine life in Washington, uh, we've got seals, we've got orca whales, we've got dolphins, we've got salmon. Um, all of our marine species are affected by the presence of this noise that is, you know, when you're out there, and I've been out there, I actually tried to um, shoot some campaign video over on Whitby Island, uh, and when when these jets are passing overhead, you can't conduct any business whatsoever. I mean, even I've been inside buildings uh, where when these jets are taking a pass overhead, um, everybody just has to pause until the noise goes away. But, um, you know, the the Navy has plans to quadruple the, the, the number of training flights. Um, the Navy has said, well, this is a very strategic location because um, the uh, the runway that they use is close to sea level. So their instrumentation taking off on that, um, on that close to sea level runway, uh, mimics what it would be because they're carrier aircraft. It mimics what, the, what would be, they would be taking off, um, and landing on actual aircraft carriers. And so, you know, the Navy has said, you know, there's no other place, but my goal. So first of all, these things are flying at 130 decibels. If you're out there, um, you know, in proximity to them. Um, even if you're inside, the noise is around 90 decibels when they're flying overhead. Um, and the science on on uh, just your hearing is that if you're uh, exposed to prolonged noises, 85 decibels or louder, uh, you're going to experience hearing loss. And so these things are flying over populated areas, schools and whatnot. And over the last decade, there has been um, an outcry from the community. Well, the incumbent 
um, takes a huge amount of money from military industrial complex um, and the transportation industry. So we've got Boeing in the area as as one of our major employers. Boeing actually builds these jets, although they don't build them locally here. Um, and so um, he has the only position that he has taken um, and the other congressmen in the district uh, or or in the area who who. Um, uh, would have a position on these the, um, over on the Olympic Peninsula is Derek Kilmer. Um, they have come back to the district and said, well, we're going to do a study. Well, the people in this area, they don't need a study on this. They've been living with these jets for the last 10 years. So what I would like to do, along with my overall understanding of the military is the biggest polluter on the planet. We have got to cut military spending. We have got to cut bases around the world. We've got to reduce our military force. We have got to stop this military adventurism is to find a new location, if we can, for these particular jets. Uh, one, if the, if the Navy has to have this program, I am sure that there are better places than right here in our district overpopulated areas. And I don't want to take a problem and shuffle it off to somewhere else because wherever this is, it's going to have impacts. Um, but right now we have a real quality of life issue for the residents um, of our district based on these uh, growler jets. Um, it is going to be, and, and I have heard actually from people who are in the Navy have and live in the area feel like the Navy is being abusive to the local population on this issue. So um, I'm going to get some pushback on that. You know, uh, certainly people who are uh, on the conservative right wing um, are, are going to look at that as uh, some kind of threat. Uh, but I think a lot of people who are who are dealing with this on top of being supportive of the Green New Deal, so we have a, a reasonably progressive district. Um, this is this is a thing that does not sit well with them, and I think it's going to be a winning campaign issue for me um, to to get the the this particular naval base at the very least to have these jets housed elsewhere. It's some kind of accommodation. Have yeah. I mentioned any PFAS use of that? I mean, there are well, um, so many more jets. <laughs> yeah. So so here's the thing. Um, you know the the town where the naval base is is called Oak Harbor. Um, mm. And the water with these um, PFA, PFO, uh, A chemicals has been measured at um, 170 parts per trillion, where oh, no. the, the, the EPA... Now, one of the problems with these chemicals, as you probably know, is that they are not regulated by the EPA. The mm -hmm. EPA has some guidelines, but they don't have any kind of um, strict regulation on them. So the right, EPA suggestion is that these chemicals not be present, these particular ones not be present in levels higher than 70 parts per trillion, but they've been measured at 170 parts per trillion. And if anybody has watched um, the Dark Waters uh, documentary, or not documentary, but the movie, um, about the DuPont poisoning of the water in West Virginia uh, knows that these chemicals uh, make the water uh, functionally undrinkable. Um, so we've got poisoned groundwater around the Naval Air Station, uh, and these chemicals will cause birth defects. Um, they can cause liver and kidney um, issues. Uh, they can accumulate uh, in, in brain and cause, um, you know, learning disabilities and so on. A lot of what we see typically with these you know, similar poisonous chemicals. Um, so the Navy has said uh, that they have stopped using these chemicals. Um, but the, the, the reality is um, that the area has already been poisoned and there's almost no effective way to do any cleanup um, uh, of those chemicals. Certainly not with the Navy standing in the way and admitting there's no problem. Right.
I actually wanted to have you talk first, but uh, you sidetracked me. The uh, disability protest. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, <laughs> the, uh, are you? The shoes. <laughs> yeah, the so day of the life. So, are you of... talking about um, when I did the Roll for Your Rights event? Mm-hmm. The Roll for Your Rights event. That's yeah. Right. So, there's a there's a candidate um, running in Oregon's first district. Her, her name's Amanda Seabee. She is a disability and chronic pain patient. Um, she had put a call out to Oregon and Washington candidates to join her um, in December uh, in in Portland to experience what it was like to just try and get around uh, the city in a wheelchair. So there were other disability um, activists down there. Uh, in fact, um, there were a couple of Portland um, City Council candidates who were there and also Albert Lee, who's running um, in another area of Portland uh, in Oregon's third district. He was there also. It was a pleasure to meet uh, Albert and Amanda. And so basically, I think it was for around three hours, I got to see what it was like, um, you know, going around the, the streets of Portland. It was it was raining. Um, and uh, so that was no fun. But getting around department stores, getting around local streets and just seeing what general access was like, um, you know, take away the fact that rolling around on a wheelchair is just it's damn hard. You know, it's a you know, and um and on top of that i was told that that wheelchairs are hugely expensive and and good wheelchairs um are are really hard to come by particularly for people who are in um low income situations or don't have good health insurance so i was rolling around on a pretty crappy wheelchair um my arms were just burnt out tired in about half an hour. Uh, going uphill uh, was hard. Going downhill was harder because you had to, you know, you get that momentum going. And I'm, I weigh 235 pounds. And so when I'm going downhill and I'm trying to stop myself, I'm, you know, my hands are getting rubbed raw on the wheels. Um, it was cold, banging your fingers on, um, on the wheel rims. Um, and then when you're inside stores, realizing how little access there is through aisles, not being able to reach up or reach down to get stuff that you need. Um, and virtually and so, no assistance available. <laughs> yeah, so I got I got a really eye-opening picture of just how difficult it is to be confined to a wheelchair and have to make it, you know, around. And I will tell you, I, I, I one of one of the worst things that I had experienced is I went, I put myself through. I had to go to the bathroom, you know. And to try and get yourself from a wheelchair to the toilet, first of all, getting into the stall, you know, was a chore in and of itself. Um, but then going through undressing as needed to use the restroom, uh, trying not to mess on yourself, which didn't happen. And was, you know, for people to have to, to, to do that every single day, we do not have nearly the accommodations that we need for our disabled population. Um, so I learned that firsthand. I consider myself to be a disability activist. Um, and I take my cues from the people who have to live this every day, telling me what they need to get, to get around and to be functionally mobile, uh, and, and to, I, I guess, experience life, uh, the best they possibly can. Um, you know, it's a, it's a struggle right now. And on top of that, we recognize that 25% of our population is in some way classified as disabled, um, not necessarily confined to wheelchair, but it, you know, again, it just, 
really gave me an inside look at at what accommodations are. I came out of that with such a different picture of what it meant to be somebody who advocated for people with disabilities. Right. And any expansion to the ADA that people could add, notionally, we're going to have to tack onto it without wider support, unfortunately. Yeah. And the ADA hasn't been updated since what, the early 90s, 92, 93 or something like that. I don't remember what the date is, but it's been over 25 years that that um, that, that act has been um, in effect and not updated. Uh, I assume you're a pretty vocal opponent for Medicare for all. I assume you uh, would have home assistance as part of your uh, program. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm 100 percent in support of Medicare for all um, covering, you know, as as Bernie said so often, you know, hearing, vision, dental. All of these are part of uh, your regular um, you know, part of being a human, you know, uh, and particularly I want to say dental health. Uh, I, is it, it's always confused me why dental health is separate from your overall medical health because all of the studies show that good dental health um, is key to other overall body health, um, and I've never understood why that was separate. Um, but yes, uh, home health, uh, long-term care, um, you know, you name it. I mean, really, if we are going to be the country that I think we should be, then people with medical conditions need to get those medical dis- conditions treated as effectively as possible um, at, with with no no um, uh, no falling back on income levels or you know ability to pay. We just we just the the, the United States population uh, is the largest risk pool there is. Let's have everybody pay into it and get the service that they needed. We could do that. We got to take the profit out of the system. We got to kill the insurance industry, um, and and that's the only that's the only way to go about doing this. Well, that's an easy turn. Uh, well, let's talk about finance. <laughs> uh, how do you uh, kill that whale, so to speak? I mean, obviously, Wall Street's is an inordinate amount of influence over basically every aspect of public policy. Where do you even start to hack? Is it just Alexander style, right in the middle of the nod, or <laughs> well? Yeah, you know, the reality is industries, businesses don't have, you know, one of the arguments against is, well, what are you going to do with um, three million people who are who have their jobs in the health insurance industry? Um, Well, first of all, um, you know, a lot of those jobs are going to transfer directly to administrative jobs with government health insurance, you know, so there is a direct transfer. Um, But Part of this, and it's just like the Green New Deal, where the Green New Deal talks about a just transition of the war- workforce as we close down the fossil fuel industry, as we close down other polluting industries, as we scale back certain industries, other industries are going to grow. And so um, having that just transition where you take people in one workforce and, you know, if you can directly transfer them to to um, similar jobs, then then we do that. But when, if there's that's not possible, then we fund retraining um, and we have those workers placed uh, with living wage jobs in other industries, in new industries. And it would work the same way with the health insurance industry. You know, if you've got a desk job uh, in an administrative capacity, there are other jobs that you can do that are a similar thing. So I think this idea that, you know, what are you going to do with all these workers? Well, you know, you find the new jobs and you fund their training. And another part of this is 
the with with a lot of automation that is likely to be you know that has been implemented likely to be upcoming i i think we need to scale down our what is a work week uh down to 28 30 hours a week um you know so we have a standard five eight hour days and 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 you get a two-day weekend there's no reason we can't go to down to uh four four hour uh four day work weeks um by comparison um, and give everybody that leisure time. And within those four days, you are making a living wage salary. Um, you know, this, France has done this. Um, other countries have done this. Their economies are functional and they take care of their citizens a whole lot better than we do. Um, so I think that the, that argument just needs to be presented um, to the American people in an effective way. Um, I don't think anybody in a transition to a to a new economy, new healthcare economy, new um, energy economy. Nobody should be fearful of not being able to get a job that will be a living wage job and and pay them what they need to to do uh, or to get in order to have a comfortable living. But it's going to take the profits away. You, you're not going to have people like Bezos making $41 billion over six weeks. That's That's what the problem is. The problem is that the wealth is created on the backs of labor gets sucked up to um, people like Bezos, people like Gates, um, and, and other billionaires. I don't know if you saw, um, the, it was something like the top eight richest men in the country, and they are all men, have made somewhere in the neighborhood of $360 billion combined over the last six weeks. Well, that's not money that is circulating back into our economy. That is not money that is going to help the American public. So with that, how are you going to pay for it? Well, we're going to tax the rich. We're going to tax those people. We're not going to allow that kind of wealth consolidation in the future. Absolutely. Um, so what would your ideal public financing of elections look like? Say, so keep it out of some, you know, Bezos and Warren Buffett's hands. <laughs> Well, um, I certainly uh, support public financing of elections. I have heard a number um, that, you know, if every voter was was uh, annually taxed somewhere around 10 to 15 dollars, that that would cover um, campaigning for all legitimate. I mean, you'd have to go get signatures. You can't have everybody just jump in and say, I'm going to do it. You have to have some viability to your campaign. Um, but beyond that, there is a public pool of uh, pool of money. That would simply be, you know, a one-time annual tax to cover local, state, and federal elections. It, it can be done. And another thing I want to say about that, and this is relative to my campaign as somebody who is fully grassroots funded with no corporate PAC money. You, my, my opponent raises and spends historically a million dollars every cycle. He gets most of that money from corporate PACs historically. 75% of his money has come from either corporate PACs or other corporate sources. Um, but I, I have raised um, somewhere, I want to say somewhere in the, I haven't looked at the final books, um, but I've raised somewhere in the neighborhood of $45,000 uh, uh, until this point. Um, and that has done what I need to get literature printed. Um, we just did a big sign order. Um, we, we ordered uh, 800 signs that we're going to stick up around the district. Um, and, you know, to get access to the to the tech tools that we need to communicate with people online um, to pay some people to do some marketing. So I think you could effect, effectively run a congressional campaign on, you know, one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars. So I look at the other eight hundred thousand dollars that this guy is raising every cycle as just a 
power play by corporations to essentially say, you know, this is our guy. This is it's it's daunting to go up against somebody who is raising so much more money than you are going to raise. I mean, I've always I've said from the start of this, there's no way we can keep compete with that fundraising. But the reality is we don't need to. So if you set this, you know, uh, pool of money, this public financing money for somebody who is who is um, running a congressional campaign that, um, you know, you could set that at around one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And that would be plenty, plenty to pay some staff and print the literature and do the communications that you need and the outreach you need in your district. All the rest of it is just grift and a power play. Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, what do you think about, uh, we've obviously seen Senator Barr, Burr rather, and uh, all that uh, financial nonsense. What do you think about uh, putting assets into a blind trust once elected or maybe something Absolutely. even further? <laughs> something further. Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm working class. When you talk about assets to somebody <laughs> like me, I, I got a 401k and I, and I was a public school teacher for 18 years and I got a TRS uh, account that has my retirement in it. That is, I don't even manage this. This is the, I'm not a wall street player with that oh, money. Yeah. You know, already <laughs> I'm going to get to a retirement at some point and I'm going to be able to access the, access that money. But right now it's just, in a fund doing whatever it's doing. Um, and, and so, you know, yeah, I am not, I am not somebody and I would speak for probably most of the people who are running <laughs> on a, on the progressive ticket the way I am. Yeah. I mean, you've got, you got people like Nancy Pelosi, who's got a, a net worth of what, $130 million. I don't know what it is, but it's some ridiculous Something amount like, like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, put that money, um, put that money in a trust and, and, uh, I, you know, I just, yeah, I mean, we, we have, we have people who are representing industry and certainly representing, um, their own, uh, uh, portfolios in Congress. There's no doubt about it. Hmm. Uh, talk about a little bit about your experience as a teacher. Uh, you, were you a math teacher? It says I was a math teacher. I was a high school math teacher. I taught, um, the upper, I've taught the whole range of, uh, high school math subjects, but, uh, you know, uh, I taught a lot of the college level, upper, upper level, um, you know, honors math, uh, pre-calculus, AP statistics, AP calculus. I love teaching math. Um, and in fact, um, I'm, I'm, if, if this thing, now I, I you know, I'm going to be careful here. I'm going to win this race. Uh, but if I don't, <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to go back to public education and, um, uh, teaching, teaching is what I love to do. Um, I, you know, uh, started teaching in 99. Uh, I am friends now with students who are adults, you know, they're in their mid thirties now. Um, <laughs> and, uh, knowing there, there really is nothing better than knowing. And I think people who work in service industries could say this, you know, whether you, whether you're working as a nurse, it's a tough job. Um, but knowing that you are doing good for society, helping people, helping students become who they're going to be in the future uh, and teaching them some math along the way, uh, which I think is, is valuable. Um, you know, there's really nothing more fulfilling. Do you think you'll find that kind of job satisfaction as a congressperson? Probably not, <laughs> but, but, um, 
you know, I've been an activist for, you know, just my personal history is I've been an activist for 30 years. I've been an anti-war activist since we invaded Iraq the first time. Uh, I was a freshman and I was a sophomore at the University of Washington back in mm -hmm. 1990, 1991, when we were invading Iraq uh, for Desert Storm. I was a street protester, got involved with the anti-war movement. I've been an anti-war activist ever since. Um, been involved in vi environmental causes, causes in um, social justice. You know, I've marched with Black Lives Matter and the Answer Coalition and uh, to support Palestinian rights and, and stuff like that. So I've done a lot of activism um, and, you know, I'm really what what I have said is, you know, Congress needs more activists. They need fewer politicians. I'm going to be in Congress to be that activist politician. Um, people have said, well, how are you going to get along with people? You know, it shouldn't I, be your problem I, I, as a politician. Huh? <laughs> and on one level, that shouldn't be your problem as a congressperson. No, it shouldn't be. And, you know, I, I think the fact that I'm running a no corporate PAC money campaign, if we're all grassroots funded, I mean, that right there is the activism that I want to represent. I want to represent the issues that are important to people, uh, living wage jobs, clean environments, health care for all. Um, and I don't think that you can do it's It's kind of weird to say that that's an activist. You know, that's just right, like, that's, that's just what we should have. It sounds um, humanitarian. Yeah. But but you have all these politicians like the incumbent who are clearly bought off to um, represent the industries seat. who are funding them. Um, and and then somebody like me who really just, you know, wants to do the best I can for, mm -hmm. for constituents. And, you know, my, let's face it for my own family. I got, I got four teens. Um, I got, I got a stepson who's in his first year in community college. You know, uh, he's, he, uh, we're, you know, my, my wife and I are, are, are working class. She's actually in school right now to be a radiation therapist. So we're paying for college tuition for her. Um, so he has to pay his own tuition. Well, he was, he was, we, we are, right now trying to figure out whether he's even going to get any financial aid for his next quarter in college because they're still considering him a dependent from us. Well, we're not paying for him. We, he's almost 20 years old. Um, but the, but the system looks at us as being people who are capable of funding him. Well, we're really not. So we need to, I'm, I'm fully supportive of tuition free college for all qualified students, for students who want to go to, to, to academic colleges or they want to go to trade schools um, there should not be a cost associated with wanting to better yourself, which turns around and helps better your society. It's just, you know, the, the rest of the industrialized world has this figured out. And it is this, you know, America is just we are just burdened with this capitalist idea of profit motive and that and that and that there has to be a financial um, presence with everything. Um no, I think we need to invest in education. I think we need to in, invest in, you know, I think our public transit, we need to invest in great public transit. It should be free. You know, I, I don't think utilities should be privately owned. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine with people being taxed for utilities, but having the government manage them. Um, and, you know, it's, we got, we just got to take the profit out of everything. You know, well, I shouldn't say I maybe I shouldn't say everything, but things that are essential for human life. Um, I, I think we've got to really take a look at whether those should be for profit industries. Certainly healthcare and education should not. Sure. Public goods. Sure. In the yes. Public sphere the commons, right. What we call right. the commons. Right.
answers. It's, it's, uh, you're interesting. I have a few Thank short you. questions, um, not as deep. Um, so, uh, has anyone ever told you you look like Ken Burns? I, who is, I, I don't even Ken know Burns. that I know who Ken Burns is. You don't know who Ken Burns is? No. Oh. God. You All right, you lost my vote. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, um, remind the, me, the, I might, you know. <laughs> the guy who did, um, like, the Civil War, baseball, jazz, Vietnam, uh, yeah. Vietnam yeah. War, the PBS documentaries with, like, the black and white those. pictures. No. Okay, no, you You've know never, what? You, you, okay. I, you've caught okay. me at a deficit do, here. However, <laughs> I, I can, I'll tell you who I have been told I look like. Is uh, I, yeah. I used to have long hair. I, I cut my hair back in November, right before I did the Young Turks interview with Jenk. I went down to Southern California in November, and I cut my hair a couple of weeks before. Prior to that, me having long hair. Now I'm a musician. I play the bass in a rock band, um, and I've been yeah. told I look like Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> a number a number <laughs> of times I've been told I look like Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah, I don't know if that's hair. a compliment or not, but you know, that's what I get. What. Uh... What's uh? What kind of music do you guys? You said rock band. Yeah, I like, was. Um, it, well, okay. So I've been in a number of original bands back in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. In fact, even going back to um, you know the early nineties when I first picked up the bass guitar when I was in college. Um, I've been in punk bands. I've been in metal bands. I've been in classic rock cover bands. You know, covering like uh, um, you know Zeppelin and, and Grateful Dead and you know and. Uh, the band that I'm in currently, and it's it's actually a struggle. This coronavirus crisis, you know, we had gigs booked, mm-hmm. all our gigs mm-hmm. got canceled. We haven't been able to practice, but we do, you know, we do Tom Petty, we do uh, Bad Company, we do mm-hmm. some Jimi Hendrix, right and and so on. So classic rock. Um, going back for get back to like the Rolling Stones and Beatles and the Monkees, all the way up to I think our. Um, m- most recent songs would be Nirvana and Green Day um, type songs, mm-hmm. yeah. but it's all covered. I've um, done the original band thing. I've put out three different al- albums with three different bands. Uh, being in an original band, trying to make it, it's it's hard work. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're no playing <laughs> you're playing you know twenty minute sets with six other bands, trying to haul your gear on stage and off stage, and you know. Dealing with, you know, oh man, we got 15 people in the audience tonight trying to sell CDs for five bucks. I've been through that, not doing it anymore. I'm happy to play yeah. music that other people wrote and go play in a bar and uh, and have a good time uh, watching people dance. Yeah. Right on. Um, are you a beer drinker? There's a big beer scene up there. I am not only a beer no, drinker, okay I'm, oh, I am a okay. home brewer. Um, in, right. in fact, yes. if I could, if I could walk my <laughs> laptop over to my, I have a, my, for my, uh, what is it for Christmas a year or two ago, uh, my wife bought me a big industrial sized glass front beer cooler. Um, so I brew my own beer. Uh, I also make, uh, mead and cider. Um, and, uh-huh. uh, I have to say I, I enter my, I enter my stuff in competition. I did win the national gold medal for the American Homebrewers Association in 2016 what? for my uh, Mellow Mel, which is fruit mead. I made a key lime mead um, that, that won gold. It's my it's my crowning glory as a brewer, but, you know. That's, yeah. Okay. I, I, you gained my vote back. I brew, yeah, I brew and good. I drink. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you, what is your favorite, not necessarily brewery, but beer from your district? 
Um, okay, so I've, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. It promote, might be one of yours. <laughs> I'm gonna promote my favorite local brewery in my district, um, and uh, the owner is a supporter of mine. Even though he's a he's a libertarian, we know each other personally. He knows that I'm supportive mm-hmm. of small business, um, and I talk yeah. I talk crap about corporations. And he says, "Hey, I'm a corporation." I said, "Yeah, but you're not that kind of corporation." You know, um, mm-hmm. it's called Crucible Brewery in Everett. If anybody's listening from the district, go check out Dick Mergens. Yeah. Um, they are selling uh, growlers. You can go in there with your face mask and pick up a few growlers. And they're mm-hmm. canning growlers as well. But, but Crucible Brewery. Very cool. Um, but my my favorite brewery in Washington State um, has has for a long time been uh, Rubens Brewery. Um, so I don't know if you know Rubens, but they've got, they've got international acclaim. I was a mug club member with them for four or five years, uh, but, but they do some f- fantastic stuff. Um, I want to ask you to compliment whoever designed your campaign sign, which I suggest people look up. It's like behind you on our Zoom call here, and it's slick. It's got a little evergreen in the A. It's a stark three colors black green white little shading on the call it's awesome. well i'll tell it. you who did that um is the same guy who built the burnout <laughs> he did yeah, oh, no. yeah okay. he designed yeah. <laughs> back when he's been on my campaign team from the very start and we went through a lot of different logo potentials and uh he threw this thing and everybody said that's the one <laughs> okay right on um is there one historical fact about your district that someone not from there, it just like quirky, unusual, or important. Well, I will say that uh, the um, Everett. I I, I want to get the year right. It was 1916 or 1918 where the Wobblies um, uh, sh- uh, struck on the Everett docks, and I, I and I I hope I'm not getting the details of the history wrong. But there were um, there were some uh, sixteen. Ag- Say, was it 1916? Yeah, okay. 1916. And and that so that happened when when those uh, wobblies were killed by you know the the thugs mm-hmm. from the the local industries uh, when they were on strike. That was uh, that was right here in our district. And I, I you know I would say that as a historical fact from a left wing perspective, that's a pretty important one. Um, if there's if I'm traveling to your district, and I like to go do things outdoors. But I don't. I'm not a mountain climber. I'm not going to like spend a week doing something, you know, or whatever. Buy a bunch of gear. Cost within reason. What's like one place to see one site or experience one thing outdoors that you'd recommend to someone traveling to your district? Um, in my district, I'd say take the Washington State ferry system. I would say get on a ferry and go up to the San Juan Islands. The San Juan Islands are in my district. Go Juan, go, yeah. go go take a drive around mm-hmm. um, San Juan Island. Uh, San Juan Brewery. Is a really good brewery. I've only been okay. I've only been there once, cool. um, but I was mm-hmm. very pleasantly surprised. Uh, they have a great selection of beer at San Juan Brewery. That's in, in uh, Friday Harbor on San Juan Island. Uh, but definitely uh, take advantage of being on the Washington State Ferries. Awesome, awesome. Well, that's all I got. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show, Jason. I, yeah, thank you, Jason. It was it was a pleasure. I appreciate it very much. Very good to talk to you um, guys. Do you have a website you want yeah to plug quick? so um it's callforcongress.com you probably can't see it on the sign behind me but it's f-o-r and not the number four callforcongress.com um 
we've got our issues tab on there so you can scan through all the things that we're supporting um i've got a fantastic opposition i've probably got the best opposition research team in the country and so we have a tab on there called rick's receipts um and you can click on there and you can look at all of the money that the incumbent takes um and uh we've got a coronavirus plan on there um and uh you know again my tech team is fantastic and my um Facebook is Call for Congress, and my Twitter handle is also Call for Congress. Of course, you know that, Charles. Sure. God. Call for Congress. It writes itself Doesn't awesome. It? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Days of sunny, days of rain, destroy the myth that will break our chains. Break your chains.